and welcome to another episode of Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Holy crap, September was a ton of fun with new episode styles, very philosophical and inspirational stories, and a deep dive into my favorite topic, conservation tourism. In case you missed an episode or were on the fence about listening to the full thing, check out these clips from each episode to see if you might want to go back and listen to the thing in its entirety. Also, just in case you missed the announcement, our Rhino t-shirt campaign is still running. Check out the specially designed Rhino t-shirts in the Rewildology swag store and purchase your favorite t-shirt or hoodie to support the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund's Black Rhino work in Tanzania. All right, let's dive in. First in September, we met three incredible scientists, Dina Spatz, PhD, Nick Holmes, PhD, and David Will, that just released an exciting foundational paper that could change the way we restore our islands. And you started to drop a little hint about what is actually going on with our islands? And I know that all three of you have seen this firsthand, but could you maybe for someone who might not know exactly what's going on, or I'm not an island expert by any means. Most of what I've studied has been on actual like landscapes on a terrestrial land. So could you maybe give us more information? Why are our islands having such a hard time? Wow. Well, let's, Let's start with a little bit of ecology, life history, natural history. And so islands are remote places. Think about Hawaii, think about French Polynesia, think about the Azores. These are places that are quite remote. And as a consequence of that, the natural history, the, the, the evolution of species in these places, in this, these places has been very different. There's a a remarkably high endemism on islands. And when you look at plant endemism and you look at vertebrate endemism, the richness on islands is about 10 times greater than what mm. you see on the mainland. Wow. And it's because of that, this these evolutionary processes where ancestors or some something has come and brought a founding population where whether it's a seed or whether it's a bird and it's allowed new species uh, they take hold and it allows new species to evolve and adapt and radiate and you know some classic examples are of course the Galapagos with finches but also if you go to Hawaii for example there were 50 Hawaiian honeycreepers a honeycreeper is a small bird that they've evolved in this beautiful marriage with plants where they they pollinate different plants and their bills and their beaks have evolved to the shapes of the flowers, lobeliads and things like this. They all evolved from a single species ancestor, probably a Cardawine finch that somehow got there, maybe by storm or maybe by strong winds, some event allowed it to get there and to take hold. And then this radiation occurs. And now we have species that occur nowhere else in the world. And the other part that happens with islands, if you think about this, it kind of makes sense. If you go to a place like New Zealand, for example, there are no native land mammals. The exceptions are bats, and of course bats can fly, and seals, excellent swimmers. So you can see how they got to places like this. And so when you go to a lot of islands, there's an absence of mammalian life history. And that's exactly what happened in New Zealand, in Hawaii, in many archipelagos around the world. And so it's the absence of these mammals and the some of their 
the traits. So predators, for example, herbivory was taken over by birds. So when you go to Hawaii, there used to be six ducks and geese, and they serve the roles of lots of other mammals that you see on the mainland. They mm. they move soil, they transport seeds, they do all these kinds of things, but they're birds. They're not mammals. There were no bobcats, mountain lions. There were no birds of prey for many of these places. And so when these mammals arrived, and that was inevitable when these mammals arrived, so cast yourself back to the times of, of ancient sailing ships and the British and the French and the Spaniards, they're, they're expanding their range, they're exploring new worlds, they're doing things. With them, they brought unintentional and deliberate visitors to the islands. Rats were amongst some of the first to think about. Rats are estimated to be on about 80% of the world's archipelagos. Wow. When rats arrived and when goats arrived, goats were often a deliberate introduction. Think of goats are often thought of as like a, an insurance strategy. If I get shipwrecked, there's a goat. I can eat it. I can milk it. I can, If I'm crafty, I can make myself a lovely cardigan or something like that. Goats for an insurance strategy, lots of plants, equivalent things. When you look around the Pacific, you'll see a lot of Cook and Norfolk pines. They were actually insurance masts in case the wooden ships lost lost a mast at sea. So therein began this age of transfer, and then it stepped up a notch when we started to have uh, an increase in shipping traffic. And in our modern world, advents like the shipping container, and modern shipping traffic has sort of transformed the ability to intentionally and unintentionally move things around the planet. Ants today, for example, so fire ants, crazy ants, there's a number of tramp ants that are particularly damaging, not just to plants and animals, but also to humans and our livelihoods, agriculture and things like this. And so... Invasives have been one of the driving factors of, of declines, extinctions, extirpation. So extirpation is to lose a population from an island, but it's not yet extinct. That has been a major feature of islands. And so it's no surprise that when you look at extinction rates and endangerment rates, islands are only about 5% of our total land mass on the planet. So you put all, take all the islands, put them in a bucket, in that bucket, about 5% are, are islands. That 5% has been home to about between 60 and 80% of our world's extinctions today. So or since, since about the 1500s. So think about those that age of sailing and things like this. And when we look at our OCN red list, sort of the global yardstick of what's closest to extinction, about 40% of our most threatened species are on islands. So 5% of the land but all of this extinction and endangerment, there's a much higher rate of extinction and endangerment islands. And it's because of this endemism. Our six geese out on Hawaii, there's only one left, the Nene. Wow. And the Nene is beautiful because it's kind of a, it's a lazy Canadian goose that came to Hawaii and then a part of that population that never went, never went back and just evolved into what it is today. It's a lovely metaphor. And this, no offence to Canadians, I have Canadian heritage. <laughs> And but we lost these these geese, and we lost all sorts of really remarkable and rare endemic plants and animals all around the world because of these introductions. They could not compete with these new species that arrived because they evolved in the absence of them. They had no instinct. 
or physiological response that allowed them to either fight or flight. They just sat there and we, that's how we lost them. And so that, that rarity led to an increased vulnerability when these invasive species arrived. That's a long-winded answer, but <laughs> there's some no, things. That was- Next, we sat down with John Linnell, PhD, and had a very philosophical and moving conversation about what it means to coexist with large carnivores. So I think the next natural question that I would love to ask you is you've written a lot about coexistence. And this is a relatively new term to the field of conservation. So to you, what do you what is coexistence in your eyes from your definition? And do you actually think it's possible to reach? I, I guess we have to take a little step back, first of all, because the the coexistence kind of discourse, it grew out of the conflict discourse. And conflicts are like the first thing that kind of come to mind when you start talking about kind of predator conservation, especially like in human dominated landscapes, right? And I guess we used a huge amount of time in the 90s and the early 2000s trying to get to grips with kind of human wildlife conflicts. You know, like the the early work was connected very much kind of focusing on the the proximate, the tactile things, like, for example, wolves who kill sheep, right? And, you know, and all the efforts of, well, how do you modify livestock husbandry to, to prevent this? You know, you had the same issue, say, with bears and garbage. You know, how do you keep the bears out of the garbage bins? How do you stop the bears destroying beehives? All these type of things. And then this work kind of led, I think, to a deeper insight into the importance of social conflicts where even in the absence of an economic conflict, you still have this sort of opposition of kind of rural areas against the return of large predators. So part of that may be based around fear, you know, and, and certainly like a wolf or a bear, they are kind of potentially dangerous, right? Then they're, they're big predators with teeth. They kill much bigger things for a living and, and humans are actually pretty wimpy things you know we don't really have much to stand up with so but it's much more than those things you know that the research really identified how these species were becoming symbolic issues linked to much wider discourses of kind of social change Mm. you know that sort of you have all of these kind of unconflicts you know between the more modern and more traditional styles between rural and urban between different political values all sorts of different divisions exist there and depending on where we are we pick on different symbolic issues right like the migration is a huge issue right everywhere you know abortion is a big issue in the us you know other countries have their issues that tend to become highly symbolic and wolves and bears especially very quickly tend to get sucked into these wider social and political debates you know, and awfully much in the same way, actually, as migrants or kind of refugees. You know, it's something from the outside, it's perceived as being threatening, it's a change. And then we immediately blame them for everything else that's going wrong in the world. 
hmm. you know, like in a kind of European kind of rural context where there's a huge kind of change in rural life ongoing since 1980s. You know, we blame you know the closing of the post office, the closing of the local school, the fact there's not a priest in the church every Sunday anymore. You know, all of these changes. You know, the arrival of the internet. You know, the fact that your beer costs twice as much. You know, every possible social change you can think of, you tend to blame it on something external like the wolf came back and everything went to hell so you have these kind of symbolic issues which are not really about the real wolf or the real bear or the real links but about the symbolic one so by the 2000s we were understanding that these human wildlife conflicts were a composite of you know real issues and economic issues and these much more wider social symbolic issues and that was kind of, kind of really good that we now understood what the problem was. The question was, how do you move beyond this? And what do we try to get to? What does kind of a sort of a successful conservation situation look like? And I'm guessing that this maturing of our understanding of conflict led us to realize that we were never actually going to solve all conflicts, hmm. that we could maybe protect sheep better. We could maybe help farmers, you know, use electric fences or adopt livestock guarding dogs and different practices that maybe would bring the loss of livestock down to a minimum, you know. And we know how to make garbage bins that the bears can't get into. We know how to protect beehives. So those aspects of conflict you can work with. But these wider social issues, you know, they are never going to change, right? You know, because all of our societies involve kind of political differences. We have different values, you know. We've been having elections, you know, every four or five years for uh, our centres now, and we still haven't agreed on who's going to run the country, you know, because we change and different people have different views. You know, same in sport, right? You know, how many Super Bowl finals have you had each year? You still haven't worked out who's the best team, right? <laughs> right. You know? Every four years, we had the World Cup or we have the the Olympic Games and we still, you know, compete, try to see who's best. And politics and values are the same. We're never going to agree. You know, what we have maybe done is we found at least kind of superficially less damaging ways to resolve our disagreements. But we're not going to agree. And predators will always be one of the elements in these debates, you know, because they are so symbolic that we're bound to just to instrumentalize them in wider political and social debates. So those aspects of the conflict are never really going to be solved, right? They're just something which we have to try to channel them into less damaging and more acceptable channels. So like, for example, in a predator context, we could hope that people could take their disagreement through the democratic channels, rather than say going out and illegally killing or illegally reintroducing predators in the landscapes, you know, that we try to keep it legal if we can do. But certainly we're never going to hope that people are going to agree. So this idea that, you know, or these kind of naive ideas that if you just have enough education, then everyone will love wolves or love mm. bears, you know, that's not going to happen, right? You know, some people are going to love them. Some people are going to hate them. Many people will be totally indifferent, you know. So it means that we're not really moving towards a world where we can even hope to have an absence of conflict. But we hopefully can move to a world where the conflicts are channeled into legal 
acceptable ways of kind of resolving differences. And that's kind of where this kind of coexistence idea has emerged from. That, you know, okay, this is sort of, if conflict is what we want to try to minimize or move a little bit away from, what do we move towards? And then people talk about kind of coexistence. And ever since that word has appeared, it's been really pulled into many different kind of directions with many people having very different views on it. You know, I think early on, people had a very sort of simplistic idea that coexistence was the absence of conflict, mm. you know, and mm -hmm. like I said, that's not going to happen, right? So kind of coexistence is now emerging as sort of a kind of dynamic, kind of fluid state where conflicts are at least limited and that sort of the predators are back on the landscape, sharing space with people. But it's always going to be a fairly messy, complicated, dynamic, kind of interactive thing. It's not going to be a Disney film, let's say, right? It's going to be something much more complicated than that. So I think it's very much an emerging concept that we're trying to fill it with kind of meaning and kind of definition. We realize that it's going to look totally different in totally different places. You know, just because the societies are totally different, the underlying acceptance for these species is going to be totally different. The the extent to which people are concerned about it will kind of vary. You know, you often see in countries which have real issues going on, like real issues of poverty and kind of armed conflict and human rights issues. For them, large predators simply become unimportant. You know, they have much more important things to focus on. In countries which are peaceful and doing well, then these species often become much more important because we don't have anything else to actually focus on. But also you have incredibly different kind of, kind of religious and cultural backgrounds. You know, I worked kind of, kind of quite a bit in India and it's totally baffling to understand the level of tolerance and acceptance people have live in the very close kind of proximity to very dangerous species like tigers, lions, sloth bears, elephants, you know, and like to put that into like a European context, we simply shake our heads and say, how can you live so close to these dangerous things? And they just look back and say, well, that's how it is, you know, or the elephants are gods, you know, you can't kill God. Can't kill so, the Ganesh. <laughs> yeah. No, so it's, it's, so this also, I think, has made the whole coexistence concept very difficult to understand because it looks so different in so different places. And it is literally, I think, a work in progress because if you look back through history, we've never really tried it before. You know, we've had a one goal through history which has been largely extermination, like not total, not everywhere, but that has been the main goal. And we were really good at achieving that goal. And now for the last maybe 50 years, we've moved over to this new goal of kind of coexistence. And we really are very fresh at working out how that looks. So I think this really much is a work in progress. Third in September, I took us through the field of conservation tourism, what it is, what it isn't, and how it can be used to better the planet. Next is probably a question that you might Google online or may have considered yourself, and that is, is conservation travel good for the planet? I'm obviously super biased, but with good reason to say that yes, conservation travel is good for the planet. It's easy for me to talk to you about conservation travel in like a philosophical, moral sense, but what does the scientific community say about the field? 
Oh yes, let's get into the literature. So first, let's return to Ralph Buckley's book, Conservation Tourism, and he explains the significance of the field for conservation so well. So he says, quote, biodiversity is important not only in its own right, but as a key foundation and fundamental underpinning of human economic activity and indeed survival, the biological basis of human civilizations. Biodiversity is under threat globally, with the global economic cost of biodiversity losses estimated at U.S. 1.35 to 3.1 trillion annually. And by the way, that stat was from 2010, so it's probably significantly more now. Continuing, global conservation efforts to date have had inadequate funding and political support and consequently limited success. He continues, in a different but overlapping set of areas, income from commercial private sector tourism enterprises can provide another and sometimes more targeted incentive. This success depends, however, on natural attractions for tourism and on the broad scale operational patterns of the global tourism industry. Conservation tourism aims explicitly to take advantage of this approach, and this is why it is significant. Additionally, I found this amazing review called Ecotourism for Conservation, with the first author being Amanda L. Stronza, published very recently in 2019, which looked at 30 years of ecotourism research and synthesized it all in this paper. These were the top benefits that Stronza found. One, support for wildlife and protected areas. The study Stronza reviewed found that ecotourism, quote, shows evidence of increased capacity for conservation within protected areas and increased support from conserving among local population, provides conservation benefit that outweighed its impacts by increasing survivorship of highly threatened species, and helps protect nature on a landscape scale. For example, in Costa Rica, ecotourism, quote, contributes not only to reduction in land degradation, but also to net reforestation in several independent cases, end quote. Two, diversified livelihoods. This one is pretty straightforward to understand. Essentially, those that live near protected areas and work in ecotourism benefit tremendously. This is because short of a global pandemic, we're just gonna brush that under the rug real fast, Tourism jobs are more sustainable than extractive industries like mining, logging, and farming. Also, the more something means to you, the more you'll care about it. Many local communities that benefit the most from ecotourism become fierce defenders of their natural resources. Three, environmental interpretation and ethics. This benefit hits on the transformation people usually experience when they participate in conservation travel. Scientists have shown that proper messaging and knowledgeable guiding can and does influence tourists to change their behavior for the better of the planet. And I've seen this personally a lot in my career. So when I worked at Natural Habitat Adventures, they were the exclusive travel partner of, of WWF, the World Wildlife Fund. And the amount of money that travelers donated to WWF after they returned from the trip was significant. It was in the millions upon millions of dollars. And they didn't do that before they went, they did that after they went because they were so moved. 
And similarly, in my current role, we have the Wild Source Foundation. And I can't tell you how many times that when people come back from an unbelievable safari, like they absolutely love their guides, they were so moved, they then feel passionate enough to donate their hard-earned money or save money or whatever it is to the foundation to, to keep our mission moving forward. It is so amazing to see. And four, strengthen resource management institutions. I thought this one was interesting, more of an indirect and but super powerful aspect of tourism. Quote, ecotourism with its emphasis on engagement with local communities and participatory approaches to development can provide the incentives and social capital to strengthen institutions. The quality and stability of local institutions influence how people in local communities are able to monitor wildlife and other resources, establish rules for use and conservation, and sanction rule breakers. Community-based ecotourism operations that help strengthen local institutions have had clearer success in conservation. Conversely, ecotourism operations with little attention to local governance have had less success in conservation, end quote. Furthermore, to quote Dr. Andrew Huberman on his podcast, he loves to say anecdata. I also love that term and, and I want to use that as well. So in several destinations that I've been to, I've had to be, I've had to remind myself to accept the seemingly excessive amounts of help that I was offered everywhere I went. Why? because hospitality was the only opportunity many of the employees had. And if I refused their help, then I was potentially jeopardizing their livelihood. And so I let people carry my small bags. I am super against check bags because I do not want to lose my bag. <laughs> so I have such little stuff when I travel. But again, I was more than happy to let people carry my little bags, bring me coffee, bring me wine, whatever it was so that I can make sure that they stay employed. I'm more than capable of doing these things on my own. And even sometimes it would make me feel slightly uncomfortable to be so well taken care of. But I know it's better for the community living beside the wildlife that I'm there to visit. For the fourth episode of the month, we had a very inspirational conversation with Mark Butcher, aka Butch, the founder of Envelo Safari Lodges and the man that helped to reintroduce southern white rhinos back to the Huangi ecosystem on community lands. And to extend that, you've just perfectly set up now this new project because now that the local communities are so involved and care so much about their wildlife, it just makes sense that you partner with them for rhinos. But first, before we get to exactly what this project is and, and how it all came to be, could you take us maybe through a history of what rhinos experienced to really set the foundation of why what you did is so just historic? It really, truly is. So yeah, maybe take us back in time. What have rhinos experienced in Zimbabwe over the past century, maybe? Okay. So probably here, yeah, to, to keep it similar, I'm going to talk about white rhinos, okay? And obviously, we've got the two species here, the black rhino and, and the white rhino. Uh, and they're both gray, incidentally, but anyway, that's another story. But white rhinos were wiped out in our country uh, at, at the turn of the 1900s, right around 1900, 1902. There's, there's, there's always a, a lot of debate about when the last white rhino was killed in, in, in our country. And at the same time, all over Southern Africa, the white, Southern white rhino, different to Northern white rhino that, that was in Uganda and uh, Sudan, East Africa, the Southern white rhino was in serious trouble. And in fact, uh, by the 1920s, it was thought to be extinct. 
but a small, very small handful of survivors were found in the northern part of Zululand and what is called the KZN today, Zulu Natal. Around about 20-something were discovered and serious intensive protection was put in, put in place around Susui and Mfalozi game reserves at that time. And from that relic pop- population, you know, it's an incredible conservation success story driven by a number of, of, of conservation heroes, including Ian Player, but that population eventually was at its height was around 20,000. So from 20 to 20,000 is fantastic. But what happened when I was a youngster in the late 60s and early 70s was the, the guys in, in Zululand had done such a great job with looking after their rhino. They now started to re, repopulate the rest of Southern Africa with their rhino. And in particular, large numbers went to Kruger. And that's where the largest population still is today, is in Kruger National Park. But the first white rhinos came back to our country, I believe in like 1970 or 1972. And they went to Matobo National Park. Quite soon afterwards, they were reintroduced into Wangi. And it was very exciting. You know, in the mid-1970s, I was still a kid. But I mean, we used to watch the trucks go past and there'd be all these guys with their uh, felt hats talking Zulu and they'd be driving past the rhino and they'd put him back in the park. By the time I started work in the early 80s in Wangi, I mean, the southern plains of Wangi, southern Wangi's got these, a lot of open savannah grassland areas. You'd go out and you'd see herds of rhino, you know, herds of white rhino, threes and fours and fives all the time, the mittens everywhere. And every evening, you know, it'd be part of what you would see, part of the landscape, you know. And it was fantastic to see them. They were, they were, they were, they really, you sense that they belong there. And the reality was also back at that time is the park didn't have a fence. And they often used to wander out and they would be amongst the, and they wander in, in, into the common lands. And I never saw them raiding crops or anything like that. There was, I, it may have happened. I don't ever remember it happening. But I remember watching local community members from where we work today uh, herding the cattle and stuff. There'd be white rhino like trees over there and kind of look at the rhino. How cool is that, you know? <laughs> but anyway, what happened is that through the 1980s, there was this onslaught through East Africa and then up to countries down north uh, on, on the rhino population. And by the time those rhino populations were so severely decimated, we suddenly had this onslaught hit us. And it was in the late 80s and early 90s, and we were completely unprepared. We had never seen poaching like a sound. I know we had poachers coming to our country speaking French and speaking mm. Swahili, you know, the guys coming from all over Africa to come and shoot out the rhinos. Uh, and there was a rhino war. And essentially, we talk about it as our first rhino war. I, I, I remember 200 odd people killed in that war. A lot of game rangers, a lot of poachers, a lot of people were shot, a lot of rhino, but we lost a huge percentage of our black rhino and we lost all of our white rhino and wanky. And we were just absolutely mortified, you know? So I believe the last white rhino was killed in the early 2000s, actually not far from where our rhino sanctuary is today, an hour's walk. And very, very sad, you know? So from there, you know, it was always this thing about, what are we going to do? You know, it was, we can't, we've got, there's two or three ways we want to bring white rhino back of doing it. And there's obviously a, a, a wrong way and a right way. And, and it was clear we've seen some rhino, white rhino reintroductions that we've done in recent years in other countries where these white rhino have been bought and they've been free released into larger landscapes and the government based law enforcement agencies have been left to look after them. And they've uh, been a terrible failure. You know? And so perhaps we need to rethink that model. And that was when we started saying, well, you know, the communal lands around Wangi are part of the Wangi ecosystem, very much so. They're not Wangi National Park, but they're part of the Wangi ecosystem. So perhaps let's think about bringing white rhino back into the ecosystem as opposed to the national park. Let's put them on the communal land. And maybe communal people, can, as custodians of these animals, will look after them a lot better than government employees might. And that was where this thing first started coming. We'd, 
we'd, we'd got the community-based tourism going and we're again, we're always looking for how can you give it a boost? You know, we still got very, very low occupancies in our lodges is one example. People, a lot of tour operators of market tourism, you know, they still can't get that. You're not in the national park, you know, you know, I want to be in the national park. That's how you do safari, you know? So, so we've, we really have struggled with it and we're a little bit further away, a little bit harder to get to. So maybe having Rhino here might be a way to kind of help that. And, and without a doubt, having Rhino creates a whole bunch of jobs and jobs, everything in a community where unemployment is 90% or 95% unemployment. So you can create jobs. That's, that's, that's just a winner right there. So, so these are all these kind of things we were thinking about. At the time, going back five years ago, when we first started talking about this project, back then we were first dreaming up having building a new clinic quite near to where we are. And it was always going to say, how oh, are we going to fund this clinic? You know, we can, we can raise money and build it, but now you know, clinics need a lot of money to keep them working. And obviously we're so remote here, I've been sport, we're going to get some government is perhaps not going to be enough. So here was a re- you know, looking for revenue generating schemes to, to fund the, the clinic and it's something other than you know, chopping down firewood or selling more hunting permits or something, you know? So, so th- these were the kind of, all these things that kind of got us all thinking about bringing uh, about Rhino. At, at first, I mean, I can say it openly now is that our authorities looked at us and said, no, this is not going to work mm. because uh, the communities are the poachers, you know? So why would you want to put something as valuable and as rare as a rhino amongst the community? They're going to poach them. I said, yeah, but you don't understand. Well, we've got some communities down there a little, little bit different, you know? And again, we were struggling with building support at all kinds of levels. But fortunately, one of the, one of the big steps was I was looking to get rhino and I thought, okay, we need to get them from South Africa, you know? And then the guy said to us, hey, you know, the folks down at Malalangwe, it's a, one of the private conservancies in the south of, south of our country. They've got rhino, you know, and they really do it right. You know, they haven't lost any. Why don't you go and speak to them and link up with them? And when I first started talking to them, they were very, very interested. But, but, but also, frankly, kind of, yeah, really? You think you could pull this off? And kind of what they sent me off with after our first meetings was to say, look, if you could prove capability, do it. Yeah, we'll support you. But first we have to prove capability. And that's what's taken a long, long time. You know, we had to show people that not only were we capable of looking after Rhino, but capable of looking after Rhino very, very well. Because that was, that was always going to be the thing. You know, if we lose a bloody Rhino, this thing is probably going to be, going to be dead and dead in the water, sadly. So that was how this thing kind of started. Lastly, we sat down with Harshini Jala to discuss Asian greater one-horn rhinos, Gangetic river dolphins, and the conservation ethics of India's tiger reserves. I completely understand what you mean. So this is the perfect segue to talk about what you're doing now. So you are working on your PhD and you have a very interesting question that you're diving into. So before I spoil it, why don't you just tell all of us exactly what it is that you are looking at and how did you come up with this particular research question? Okay, so my PhD research is basically looking at biodiversity responses to relocating residents from within protected areas. And so in 2006, India came up with the idea of incentivized village relocation. So what the Indian government does is it asks people to more voluntarily move out of national parks or protected areas, and they incentivize it by giving them a monetary financial package. 
which works out. And so the idea behind it is when protected areas are formed, a lot of local communities that live within that area are displaced and moved out. And that has happened in the past in India and all across the world where people have been displaced and moved out because you formed a new protected area for conservation. The thing is that a lot of these displacements are looked on negatively because of the ethics behind it. Like people have rights too, and you cannot just move them out. And it is kind of a win-win situation because you create these inviolate wilderness areas for wildlife, but you're also giving compensation to people to move out and they're moving out of their own free will. Uh, and hopefully to a better life outside because no one wants to live in a forest where your crops are under threat, your life is under threat, you have tigers and lions in your backyard. So the, the thing is that most of these relocations that happen are happening within tiger reserves because it's a tiger conservation policy. So the tiger reserves in India are basically divided into a core, which is technically the central zone of the tiger reserve, which ideally should be devoid of all human habitation. And then you have the buffer region, which is a multiple land use area with conservation as one of its priorities. And so the National Tiger Conservation Authority wants to create these in violet spaces for tigers in core areas. And so they are voluntarily asking people to move out and incentivizing it from within these core areas. And we know that there is some evidence that tigers definitely do benefit when people move out. There have been studies that have shown that tiger, female tigresses breed when human pressures have reduced in certain tiger reserves. And so we know it works for tigers. What we don't know is how it works for other biodiversity. So India pumps in so much of money into this conservation program. And between, I think, 2014 and 2018, we spent over $40 million wow. just voluntarily asking people to move and moving people out. And so if we are spending so much money and we don't have enough scientific evidence of whether it works, or it doesn't. And if it works, to what degree does it work? How does restoration actually happen in these areas? So that's what I want to look at for my PhD, how restoration happens once you've moved people out of these tigerisms. And that is it, a snapshot of September's wide-ranging episodes. Don't forget to check out the website and grab your rhino conservation shirt or hoodie. As always, we want to thank you for being a part of the Rewatology community. If you would like to support the show in other creative ways, there are several options to do so. Zero-cost ways to support the show include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewatology newsletter at Rewatology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at the website or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewatology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. 
I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer, for making the show sound and look awesome, and Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewattology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>